Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long. For just $25. $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up? This is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Dealing with pests can be a pain, but relax. Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. If your home or business has pests, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X dot com. From UFOs to psychic powers and government conspiracies, history is riddled with unexplained events. You can turn back now or learn the stuff they don't want you to know. A production of iHeartRadio. Hello, welcome back to the show. My name is Matt. My name is Noel. They call me Ben. We are joined, as always, with our super producer, Paul Mission Control Deccant. Most importantly, you are you, you are here, and that makes this stuff they don't want you to know. This is part two of uh, what turned out to be a continuing series on fashion. The dark side of fashion. Uh, in our previous episode, we explored the troubling underbelly of the fashion industry. We touched on problems such as exploitation of labor, legislative loopholes around the world, and cases of continuing outright slavery. In today's episode, we're going to look at another aspect of the fashion industry, its effect on the natural world, which is something I think escapes a lot of folks. I know it escaped me uh, before we really dove into this, but let's start with makeup, which is fascinating in itself. Uh, Here are the facts. Yeah, the first use of early cosmetics generally goes back to ancient Egypt. And it's not uncommon to find Egyptian tombs 
that actually have makeup canisters or some kind of uh, makeup inside of them. It's kind of interesting stuff. Um, and Cleopatra, uh, you may have heard this, she used lipstick. They got its hue from ground carmine beetles. Ew. I mean, <laughs> yeah, you get hues wherever you can get them, really. I, I mean, hues, you, still, you can hues. still get dyes from animals. You know what I mean? The, the exactly. beetles are still, are still a part of this industry. True. Exactly. True. And, and, you know, and that was very striking to use the beetles. Uh, Cleopatra's use of the beetles was very striking because... Uh, a lot of other women at the time, just anyone who was using makeup, would have mixed clay essentially with mm. water to mm-hmm. get a coloring on their lips, which like a red sure. clay kind of situation, perhaps. That well, had, seasonal. Seasonal clay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But there was other stuff that that people used uh, to find color and. and to use it on their bodies. Yeah, they were super ahead of the curve. We're still talking about Egypt, uh, where um, you could use coal, which was a mix of metal, lead, copper, ash, and burnt almonds. Uh, and surprise, surprise, wasn't particularly good, good for you. Good for your complexion, making, you know, rubbing lead and copper uh, mixtures on your face. Probably not the best idea, but it sure looked cool. Gave you this real iridescent kind of shiny eye circles. And both men and women were all about this style. They painted these kind of raccoon circles around their eyes. And the circles of call were meant to ward off the evil eye. Uh, which is a thing you see often in Egyptian hieroglyphs, if I'm not mistaken, and dangerous spirits. And much like you'll see baseball players and football players with those uh, big, you know, kind of dark lines under their eyes, um, turns out it's really good at deflecting the uh, the sun and keeping it out of your eyes and keeping it from, uh, it keeps you cooler, essentially. And it may have even inadvertently helped some of the Egyptians ward off infectious diseases because even though the lead's not good for you and on the one hand it can kill off bacteria um, but yeah this wasn't necessarily as much of a thing that we could see because Egyptians didn't have particularly long lifespans anyway they were like the hamsters of civilization Um, the it might have actually killed them off if they continued to wear it if they had had longer lifespans yep lead is bad for you it turns out, uh, as we've seen in the, you know, the now infamous uh, studies correlating lead exposure in early childhood to problems later in life. Uh, we talk about the Egyptians a lot because it's the most uh, it's the most commonly known example of what we would call prototype cosmetics. Uh, the ancient Greeks and Romans also painted their faces with powders made up of various minerals or ground stone. But we can't be too Egyptian-centric or Greco-Roman-centric because if you think about it, cosmetics appear in some form in virtually every culture. Like we noted in the first part of the series, uh, fashion is sometimes dismissed as something purely decorative, but it's also, it can be a powerful statement. And makeup is the same way. It has multiple uses across the span of history, not just, uh, not just, relegated to the realm of decoration. Uh, Noel, I really appreciate you pointing out that coal served, K-O-H-L, by the way, served a practical purpose. Uh, Makeup has and continues to uh, serve as uh, a symbol of religious significance in some cases or of social status, like your example, Matt, uh, about uh, the queen getting the good fancy 
lipstick with beetles versus, you know, the old clay water of the working class and the proles. So just like fashion, of course, makeup has gone and will go through multiple phases. Different things go in and out of style. The origin story of modern makeup, cosmetics, personal care products, as we understand it today, uh, really starts at the dawn of the 20th century. That's when you see the emergence of things like nail polishes, lipstick, mascaras in, again, what we will call the modern form. And it there, there are a couple of really weird well, really fascinating social and technological factors that coincided and and birthed modern makeup or popularized it. Well, yeah, I think about it right around this time for really the first time in a popular way, you are probably having a picture taken of you, like a, a, a portrait, something that is up close and personal. It's going to show everything going on up here, right? So, yeah, I mean, I mean, seriously, you'd have to you'd have to really save up your money if you wanted to get one of these done and you'd have to sit there for a long time. This would be the one picture you got. This is it. This is the this is your chance. You got to make sure you look the absolute best. It's not like you can take 28 of them and then decide, hey, I'm going to post this to my 1800s Instagram. And that that time factor is also why uh, people you don't see a ton of people smiling in those old photos because you would have to do this. For so for so very long, you know, I I don't know about you guys, but I grew up when I was growing up. I just thought everybody uh, from that time was in a real mood. Totally. (laughs) Did, did, Did I make this up or weren't there even devices that would like hold their heads in place or something like that? Like some kind of little thing that they could I, rest. I, I swear to God, I read I know that for for the photography that became popular, that was like a photo of a dead body after mm-hmm. someone had passed. That kind of apparatus was created, but I, I don't know about uh, actual like regular old alive human photography head bracers, or I don't know what you'd call it. <laughs> All right, maybe I'm, maybe I'm getting my maybe. terms mixed. Up I'm not. There. I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just saying I I've never heard of it. No, I'm gonna go ahead and come out and say it. I'm wrong. You know, there's something like that that happens, though, especially with photographs of uh, infants because their Mm. heads are really big. So there's probably a mom or dad who's like, let me prop (laughs) up your noggin here. Uh, it's fine. It's fine that it's still soft. You got the soft spot. It's fine. Don't worry about it. We'll be gently fine. prop up. Your <laughs> yeah. Uh, the other factor, another factor is that mirrors, true mirrors, we would call them, became much more affordable. So they were much more common in the average person's home. But the big one, the biggest badger in the makeup bag here is the rise of the motion picture. Fundamentally changed the world, fundamentally changed uh, makeup and the normalization of how people should look. Uh, Because we have to remember that a lot of actors who came into the early days of motion pictures were wearing theatrical makeup for live stage. And that's very different because you want something that exaggerates your facial feature. So even the people way in the cheap seats can see your uh, emotions and the transformations you go through. uh, And that just looks screwy on film because you're really close up. It's the same with acting styles being different from stage to film. You have to act very large and and in order for people to catch the the vibes that you're putting out there in film, you can act much more daintily and uh, subtly. Uh, and, and by the way, quick amendment. 
I was not wrong. It's called a head brace, and it's absolutely a thing. Well, there you go. Okay. I was wrong. It's this weird medieval torture device looking thing on a stand that sits behind you and you can you can lengthen or shorten it depending on where you want your head to be. And it's not like it like is a claw or something. It's something you sort of lean your head back against because you think about it. Even your neck muscles are going to get tired and you might drift from one side to the other or forward to backward. This thing just sort of it's like a fancy uh, headrest on an office chair, only it's separate and you can't see it in the picture. Well, yeah, I mean. That's great. As long as the spirit glue holds the mustache on your face, then we'll be okay. Um, I love it. And those are technological innovations that evolved in step with this new media is what we're having. We're having an increasing democratization of media, but it's nothing like the breakneck pace we're at today. And fast forward, of course, makeup, uh, cosmetics are a huge part of this. And today, the modern cosmetic industry, which is so huge that it's tough to even call it a single industry, is an economic titan. It is a financial leviathan. Uh, The main categories are each, you know, uh, industries of their own, Uh, skincare, hair care, makeup, perfume, cologne, toiletries, deodorants. Uh, Things are called oral cosmetics, which is an interesting kind of liminal space. Anyway, since the early 20th century, the production of all these products, beauty and cosmetic products, has been controlled by a handful of corporations that I won't call cabals, But I mean, they're just very huge and very successful. Uh, Some uh, specialize in these products like L'Oreal. Others own a ton of other things that are not associated with cosmetics like Unilever or Procter & Gamble. And there's Estee Lauder and, and, and so on. What we're saying is there are some big fish at the top. And as of 2018, the U.S., was considered and still is considered the most uh, valuable, aka profitable, beauty personal care market in the world. Uh, in 2018 alone, this industry generated $89.5 billion just in the U.S. in one year. Wow. That's that's incredible. Um Okay. Well, let's talk about what the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, has to say. Uh, They define cosmetics as, quote, articles intended to be applied to the human body for cleansing, beautifying, promoting attractiveness or altering the appearance without affecting the body's structure or functions. I love how beautifying and promoting attractiveness are two different things somehow. I don't quite understand the difference, but they, they seem to be important enough to be listed separately. I don't know. I to me that feels like one is for you and one is for others. I don't ah. know if that's I don't know if that's correct or not. Um, mm-hmm. But again, we we talked about a lot of these things. We're talking about skin creams, perfumes, all that stuff. Um, yeah, but everything to even shampoo, things you may not think about. Um, as weird as this sounds, there's there's ocular cosmetics. If you think mm-hmm. about uh, like c- contacts that you can get that mm. are specialized and all these other things, it's weird. To make your eyes all black, right? Right. Or yeah. whatever. Yeah, mostly just all black. Um, it's really interesting stuff. And before we go too much further, I want to ask, do you guys know two people named Shane Dawson and Jeffree Star and or? The names are familiar. Hmm. Doesn't ring a bell for me. Okay. My wife introduced me to this. These uh, Jeffree Star is a well-known cosmetics designer uh, and 
This company manufactures a ton of different cosmetics. They put out, oh, I'm going to use the incorrect terminology. I, I, I apologize to anybody who knows this stuff, but they put out a makeup kit called Conspiracy. And <laughs> it, it genuinely had cool design. And uh, my wife happened to get one. Um, but they were in crazy demand because these are these are YouTubers. They're like uh, social social media influence influencers, whatever that is. Um, and they are so popular. When they got together and put this thing together, it it they sold out of everything, broke the internet a little bit. It's fascinating the way that that those two worlds are connecting, and we can maybe talk about that a little later. But yeah. social media influencers and co- the cosmetics industry. Oh yeah, do you have? I, I was hoping for a second, Matt, that you would you would have a show and tell segment for us. But I, I'll just uh, I'll check it out later. Uh, maybe I can go get it. I I think she still got it somewhere. I'll go, I'll go, I'll go have to look. Well, we'll find it. Maybe maybe they'll sponsor us at some point who knows uh, no they they don't need us <laughs> they, they probably don't no they i don't think they do but uh but you're right there is a fascinating intersection and this is this industry is all about these fascinating at times disturbing intersections i mentioned that liminal space earlier when we talked about oral cosmetics uh it's it's weird and it goes back to the idea of affecting the body's structure or function uh, being efficacious in some physiological way. So any any ingredient used in a cosmetic falls under that FDA uh, definition that, that you gave us earlier. But what about products that have a, a, a physiological claim? Toothpaste is a weird example. Sometimes toothpaste is a cosmetic. But if toothpaste says that it does a specific thing to alter your body, such as protecting you from cavities or uh, whitening your teeth, then the FDA may classify it as a drug. So people are still working out what this means and when, and and it's an important question. I mean, makeup and cosmetics are a vital thing. There are numerous fascinating works on the history of makeup alone. I'm sad we can't dive into more of it. Uh, There are thousands and thousands of experts, just like the ones you mentioned, Matt. Uh, There are innumerable tutorial sites. There are so many people working in this industry or associated with the manufacture, the sale, the uh, transportation of makeup. Uh, But it turns out, that makeup itself may be covering something up. Get it? There may be something sinister beneath the beautiful surface. Of all that concealer. Of all that concealer. It, yes, it may be concealed. Oh, God, we're, we have an abundance of puns, an embarrassment of makeup, and uh, a, riches. An, an, an abundance? An abundance, mm, yes. Yes. Break out the blush, everyone. And uh, take some time. Let's all let's all put our faces on, as they say. We'll pause for a word from our sponsor, and we'll be right back. Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists, like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long. For just 20 
$25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, snag a job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor! Gene, we'll boot it! Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Jin, and Vlastor on the business. I understand now. It's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Jean! Run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Here's where it gets crazy. Makeup has problems. No two ways about it. One of the biggest ones I think a lot of our uh, a lot of our fellow listeners instantly thought of, as you saw the title for this episode, is animals play a big role, uh, and we have some uh, returning tragedies to the stage today. It's foreshadowing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, animal testing. I mean, I, I think we've, we've, we've all seen Fern Gully, The Last Rainforest. Uh, remember Robin Williams' character, the Bat Batty, who does a really great rap talking about 
being an animal uh, test subject in laboratories for cosmetic departments. That's the thing. Uh, it's a big deal. There's a longstanding argument to be made that testing makeup ingredients on animals is a necessary evil um, because, you know, imagine the fallout if there was some kind of skin cream that hit the market and then gave people insane hives or rashes or, or worse. Um, so with this in mind, many of these products have been tested on animals. And Ben, correct me if I'm wrong, we're literally talking about like a, a lab where somebody puts lipstick on a bunny rabbit. Is that basic? Is it is it that? Am I oversimplifying it? What what does this look like? It's changed a lot over the years, and there are a lot of different examples of it and applications. And you know, you don't have to necessarily like if we're taking lipstick for example, you don't have to necessarily place it on an animal's lips to see if it does the thing. You mm -hmm. can place it just on skin, essentially, of certain species to see if it's going to have a reaction. Yeah, the testing is much worse than uh, literal lipstick on a pig. Ha ha, that's for my old English teachers and lovers of cliches. Yeah, when it comes to the makeup in the animal world, there are two primary issues, animal products used as ingredients and animal testing. This is still a big deal. Uh, different countries have their own sets of laws about this. There's not like some UN declaration about whether or not you should test this stuff on animals and how you should do it. In the U.S., uh, the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, uh, which is created and overseen by the FDA, prohibits the sale of what they call adulterated cosmetics, but they don't require the animal test be conducted to demonstrate that a cosmetic is safe. Instead, they kick the responsibility to the manufacturer, saying that the manufacturer has to uh perform whatever testing is necessary. Compare that to a country like China, where the government conducts mandatory animal tests on every single imported cosmetic product, doesn't matter what it is. Uh, the government can also conduct animal tests on items that have been pulled from any store shelf. The European Union has had a ban on uh, types of animal testing and marketing of things that were tested on animals since back in 2013, so for seven years. And then there's a laundry list of other countries that fall somewhere in the middle. They passed similar laws against animal testing. Um, like Some states have passed laws, like California uh, or different states in Brazil. So it, it's all over the place. Now, to answer your question you asked earlier, uh, what kinds of tests are we talking about? Well, what kind of animals are used in testing? This, this is going to bother a lot of people. They're typically cute animals. Uh, they're mice, rats, rabbits, guinea pigs, uh, and they're, they're used because they are mammals. And they have similarities with humans, broadly speaking. So the idea is that if we expose an animal that's enough like us to a substance, then we'll be able to predict what will possibly happen to a human who is exposed to this substance. So these tests are, these tests can be pretty gruesome. Uh, like you were talking about, Matt, skin and eye irritation test. That's where they'll shave an animal's skin and they'll expose its skin to a certain chemical or substance or product. Uh, usually it's the chemical or the substance. This is usually before they get to like the name brand stage. And then uh, these substances can also be dripped, like they'll restrain a rabbit, for instance, and they'll drip in a substance to its eye 
to the idea being that we'll see how the rabbit's eye reacts and that'll teach us what happens to a human eye if somebody gets, you know, mascara in their eye or something. Yeah, and, and that's... So that that's what it's testing. If it gets on your skin or just if you're using a normal use or if it gets in your eyes. But other times they are testing to see what happens if a human ingests this chemical. So if if maybe a child or an adventurous human gets a hold of some of this makeup that has this chemical in it and they just down a whole bunch of it, how much does it take to cause serious harm to this person to cause what would be considered a poisoning or to even cause death to this person? So they do it to the animals until it happens. Isn't animal testing illegal in a lot of places in the States, though? Right, yeah. As we said earlier, uh, California is probably the best example of that. Uh, but it does it does go state to state because, again, the FDA has put the onus of responsibility on the manufacturer to test what you need. And, and that's, uh, that's how we get, to go back to the test, that's how we get things like you're describing, that lethal dose test. Uh, this, this is similar to those tests you hear about uh, a, a sugar substitute, for instance, causing cancer in rats. Then uh, force-feeding stuff, like at what threshold of ingestion will insert thing here give you cancer? Or cause birth defects. Right. Right. Um, but also, like, a lot of these companies obviously manufacture their products in other countries. And there are different laws in other countries. And I was just looking around, Googling around a little bit. And apparently in China, full-on animal testing is, is still a thing. And companies like Estee Lauder, Clinique, Mary Kay, um, uh, Maybelline brands, you know, big brands, uh, still do full-on animal testing in China. Yeah, because it's the law. They have mm. to in China. So, uh, there, you know, you can find a lot of stats on this from various places, institutions that admittedly have agendas, like the Humane Society. I mean, it's their job to be kind of biased <laughs> in this regard uh, because they, they want to, they advocate for the humane treatment of animals. So, according to the Humane Society, these animals are often killed at the end of a testing process, typically by asphyxiation, having their necks broken, or being decapitated. Opponents of animal testing argue, one, that it's unnecessarily cruel, but they also point out that in many cases, the results of these tests may not be near as accurate as we, we might want to believe. Different species respond differently to the same chemicals. You know what I mean? Like, you can eat chocolate, but your dog probably shouldn't, right? And, and dogs and humans are very similar. Uh, and so results from these tests may not always be relevant to humans. They can overestimate or more dangerously underestimate possible hazardous effects uh, for people. So at the moment, there are a series of legal and industry initiatives pushing to ban this kind of practice and other related practices with, um, as you can tell by the list of countries you mentioned, uh, pretty significant results. And, you know, this does seem to be uh, a widespread thing where people are uncomfortable with this by and large. Um, but, you know, outside of even like the PETAs and the humane societies of the world, not a good look. Uh, I think your average person would probably not be okay with this. But while we're on the subject of animal testing, what about using animals themselves 
as ingredients. Well, let's. Uh, I do want to be fair and point out uh, one uh, one thing we missed that we would be remiss if we didn't say this. Proponents of animal testing do have an historically solid argument, which is: isn't it better to harm a non-human animal than to risk harming a human being? I think that's a a, a debate that I would have a very hard time siding with. And in it's not because that my dog just barked. I love my dog. <laughs> I would never allow anything to happen to her like that. And I don't want anything to happen like this to any other animals. Um, we're just going to add the dog barking as color. Yeah, for this you section. heard my cat eating earlier, <laughs> well, by the way. That crunch crunch was uh, Dr. Bankman. It's, it's also uh, like, I mean, you could also throw into the argument. It's not like these are life-saving drugs. These are essentially what some might consider frivolous or extra or things that are nice to have. But do we really need this stuff? You know, I don't know. Many Not would say, point. yes, God, yes, we need this. We need this. But, but you know, but, but I guess what I'm saying is internally, just as a, I, I'm just going to keep it in because it really yeah. does make sense. Um, it does make sense to me. The art, the proponents of animal testing, their arguments make complete sense to me. And I don't know how you could make sure a chemical or a product is safe unless you had that information, um, you know, for poison control, for response, if, especially if you're thinking about a child that ingests something like how do you get that data without this? And I guess that's my big question um, to anybody who is completely against animal testing, which I think I am, but I don't understand how we get that data without it. So it's like a necessary evil argument again there. It it feels like it. Yeah. And, and so this, this kind of, You know, while we're on the subject of animals, uh, I think, as you set us up here, Noel, there are uh, numerous ingredients from animals that are used. Uh, And this is a whole other uh, ball of pomade, I guess, uh, because things changed since the age of Cleopatra and beetle lipstick. But maybe they didn't change as much as we might assume, because Let's consider people who practice a vegan lifestyle. By lifestyle, we mean uh, people who want to avoid what they see as exploitation of animals in any possible sense. If you practice this lifestyle, then it's crucial to know which types of makeup or which brands of personal care products use animal ingredients. And these ingredients, this is what I was talking about with a returning star. These ingredients include things uh, that may not sound like they come from animals when you read them in, in like your list of ingredients. Retinol is found in anti-aging products. Estrogen, this is the weird fact I learned for today. Estrogen is obtained often by extracting urine from pregnant horses. doesn't really, I guess, hurt the horses. It's just, uh, it probably weirds them out, you know? I I can understand being weirded out by that. Uh, Ambergris (laughs) is one, you know, that's a uh, waxy substance that lines the stomachs of whales, and it's not used uh, for, like, your skin. It's used because it helps scent stay in perfume. Uh, that and that's a, that's an historical thing that's still used today. A returning guest is squalene, which we mentioned in an earlier episode when we we're talking about a uh, possible coronavirus vaccine and the deaths of sharks because squalene is used in vaccines. We mentioned it's used in cosmetics. It's extracted from the livers of sharks 
in a way that is not super pleasant for the sharks. Uh, and then it's added to eye makeup and lipstick. Yeah, that's it's really strange. And those are not all of the animal products that can be found in in some cosmetics. Yeah, no way. Um, yeah. And, and, and as you can tell just by what Ben said, I mean, these can be derived in a lot of different ways from extracting urine uh, or from extracting essentially livers, right? It's um, there's a, there's a wide range of how much harm you're actually doing to an animal individually in the process to get it. But also when you're using an animal as a product like this, it generally doesn't bode well for the animal's well-being afterwards, no matter how you're getting it. Yeah. And the burden of education is on you as the consumer. It's on us as the end users. You're not going to, uh, you're you're not going to go to your local uh, makeup store or something and see like uh, see an advertisement for a foundation that says we proudly use animal products. Here they are with a picture of the animal or something on there. That's that's just not the kind of PR they're looking for. Uh, now with more squalene. Now, more 10% more squaling. Uh, and uh, you can, however, uh, be empowered by your own research. You can find multiple resources online, multiple studies and databases indicating whether animals are used in a given product. And companies are transparent about this. You just have to ask. Uh, and they'll, you know, you'll be able to find usually whether this is for testing purposes or whether it's as a source uh, of an ingredient. The testing purpose thing, again, uh, as, as I said earlier, depends on the laws of a given region. So because of that, because of this pastiche of laws, this can all be completely legal. It can all be above board. It doesn't, uh, it, it's not like some cartel conspiracy necessarily. And because of that, the decision to choose the cosmetics you want to use is it remains a personal rather than a legal matter. But regardless of what sort of ingredients or, or testing are involved, makeup and the fashion industry overall has another secret, quite a dirty one, and that's pollution. Yes, Ben, literally dirty. <clears throat> I love just that we're making these concrete connections to, to words in this episode, and they are puns. But they're also uh, just exactly what we're talking about here. Um, I guess we just have to talk about something. What happens when an industry starts out as pretty small, right? It's not like it's not like the coal industry or the oil industry began as a giant behemoth, right? Or any other industry, anything really. It always starts starts small, and it has to. That's just the nature of it. But it begins to balloon and balloon and more people are doing and more people are manufacturing, more people are enjoying whatever the service or the product is. And it just at some point it gets too big. Right. And when it's once it once it becomes too big, and I, that's that's my judgment. Right. Too big. Um, there are going to be negative effects on everyone because there's going to be a negative effect on environments, you know, both in in small areas, right? In controlled areas, you're going to have really bad effects there, but also overall 
to the entire planet, there could be negative effects. Yeah, it's funny. Even in like, you know, podcasting, we always talk about scaling and like, you know, starting from a smaller company and then launching way more shows and et cetera, et cetera. And I was thinking like, oh, we're kind of lucky because we're in sort of a zero pollution uh, business. We don't make products that like can end up in landfills. But even that, like, you know, the, when you scale on that level, you start to having to add more server capacity or like more computers. And then that can lead to waste downstream. It's just interesting. Anytime, just to your point, Matt, that an industry balloons in this way, there's going to be collateral damage. And with the fashion industry where things are so seasonal, you know, it's very easy to generate a massive amount of waste, you know, on the clothing side of it alone, let alone the com- the cosmetics, the packaging, all the plastics. We've been talking about that too much lately, but it's absolutely a thing. Just to put this out there before you move on, I would say that depending on how you are listening to our voices right now, we could be said to be creating noise pollution. Just saying. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> right, because so many people uh, only only roll down local Main Street uh, with this going through the subwoofers. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, is, is that you rolling down Rodeo Drive, listening mm-hmm. to this right now? Mm-hmm. Well, good on the you. shotgun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so this is a this is a good point, Matt. I would also say we're talking uh, to to the point about podcasting. We're talking about hidden cost, right? As it was often as it would often be described in economics, uh, a, a hidden environmental cost of something like podcasting would be uh, the fact that uh, the technology is reliant on uh, rare earth metals, you know, uh, the both for the creators and the audience. Uh, the fact that uh, plastic is used in the devices. Yeah. The fact that we're powered by electricity, right? And where is the electricity generated? You know, All the files. Oh, mm-hmm. it's coal-powered electric. You're right. And and yeah. all the servers that are holding mm-hmm. all the files that are mm-hmm. being sent across the world. Oh, boy. there's it, This is worse than we thought, Noel. And the world of uh, cosmetics and the world of fashion is no different. You know, there is a gr- really compelling argument that, uh, and I don't want to sound jaded, but that an industry past, any industry past a certain threshold of size uh, does endanger what we call the the commons, right? The the public things and resources. So, like we said, plastic. Uh, the personal care industry is like ballpark five hundred billion dollars worth of stuff a year. And and think about think about how much it relies on plastic, shampoo, body wash, lipstick, mascara cases, deodorant. You don't see this stuff in a ton of like glass containers. The vast majority of these products are more often than not sold in plastic containers. Not all, but a ton of them. Yeah, it's sort of the same as is with uh, recycled plastic. We talked about how uh, it become you pay a premium for getting goods made of recycled plastic because it costs more to make. And it's the same with more luxury goods. I mean, perfume, like fancy bottle of perfume from Gucci or, you know, something like that will still come in a glass bottle. Uh, fancy soaps that you get, bespoke type soaps on Pinterest or other sites like that, you know, they're going to come in bars and they're in crazy shapes and have like wood chips inside of them and stuff for exfoliation. But yeah, mass produced. That's the beauty of... Uh, mass production is for everybody. Everyone can afford to have these things, or maybe in the past, perfume would only be available for those with lots of money. Um, But in order to do that, you have to make the packaging cheaper and easier to mass produce. 
Yeah, and you know a lot of a lot of what's seen as luxurious today, there's a bit of nostalgia to it. There's a retro factor. We're selling a concept as much as we are selling a product, right? Ultimately, all advertising is selling an idea more so than a tangible object uh, or even a service. So that stuff you're describing harkens back to the not-too-distant past when soap came in a bar form and perfume was luxurious. Someone had to go out and scrape the inside of a whale's stomach. Yeah, they also have some glass glass or metal bottle. Well, no metal, but I have glass bottles. Uh, and, and hair care was packaged, you know, in little tins, in little jars. And now you can see, you can still see that stuff because it does, it does feel uh, more elevated, right? This isn't just your, your uh, plastic store brand uh, shampoo or uh, foot powder or whatever. I don't know if foot powder is a cosmetic. It's probably a drug if it fixes something. I want to see more glass shampoo bottles just to like up the ante for when you're using it in the shower. Like, do not drop this shampoo. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) That's right. Yeah. Wow. Whatever happened to soap on a rope too, guys? I I think we should bring that back. Let that be a nostalgia thing. I'm pretty sure it's still available in several novelty stores in places across the the country. Are they uh, shaped like naughty things? Oh, I don't don't know what they're shaped like. I just Just know that there's ropes with soaps. Okay, ropes and soaps. There's a shop in the United Kingdom that I, for some reason, was obsessed with a number of years ago called Labor and Weight. And they they sell this kind of nostalgic uh, stuff. They sell, like, cardboard boxes of soap flakes, things like that. But, oh, yeah. But to your point, uh, to your point, Matt, this the, I didn't even think about that. That is such a compelling reason for the use of plastic and shampoo bottles. <laughs> I mean, the, the household injuries alone, right, honestly, right. Uh, yeah. so many people would hurt themselves. But, but, but I totally hear with the tin thing, right? That's, mm. that's coming back. I've seen in several places where it's a shampoo bar, essentially. That it'll come in a tin or something, or it'll just be a shampoo bar that's standalone. Do you um, froth they, it up and yeah. then put it in your hair? Okay. Yeah. I didn't I know mean, you that, just rub the bar across <laughs> your head. You got to get a good lather going. Get a good lather. <laughs> and then, yeah. Or, or like, you know, pomades and stuff. Things that are sort of retro. A lot of times will come in tins or, or, or glass jars because it it's part of the vibe. It's part of like the, uh, the optics of the product, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, again, we're selling an idea as much as we're selling a product. And how how did how did we get here? Well, after World War One, the U.S. became the most prolific producer of personal care beauty products and also the biggest consumer. And part of that is uh, not that the U.S. was super special or had the you know some federal mandate to become this titan, it's because Europe was recovering from a massive war and, and things like uh, uh, things like popularizing different uh, esoteric or niche beauty products took a little bit of an understandable backseat. Uh, there's, there's a great article by a writer named Alejandra Barunda in National Geographic that that examines the history here and and also the rise of plastic. Here's a quote. During the war, the military had imposed strict hygiene codes as a way to prevent disease from spreading amongst the troops. And when those soldiers returned home, they brought with them ingrained habits of washing, shaving, and toothbrushing. 
By the mid-1920s, a whole industry of personal care popped up. In 1926, the Lever Company, which would later become Unilever, a major multinational personal care product uh, company, kicked off an ad campaign outlining the damage body odor could do to one's career and social prospects. Mm. <laughs> what does that remind me of? What does that uh, remind halitosis, me of? Halitosis, perhaps? Yeah. Bernays-ish? A little yes. Bernays-ish? <laughs> <laughs> yes. These doctors say the body odor that you're sporting is really not going to be great for you. So you should... Your job opportunities <laughs> stink. Literally, <laughs> right? Yeah. Somewhere yeah. around here. <laughs> right, right. And... Uh, and what I love about the way that's written is there's this there's this strange kind of implicit implication that before people came back from World War One, no one was washing, shaving, or brushing their teeth. That's not true, <laughs> but but this military regimen, you know, became popularized and normalized. And at that very same time, remember again, Hollywood is exploding. So now we see these actors that we love. We worship these modern celebrities. We want to look like them. We want to know what they use for a face cream. We want to know what, uh, you know, what they put on their armpits before they go to a job interview. So it's big business. And then when plastics come out, the, the, this enables the industry to accelerate even more, of course, the beauty industry immediately jumps on plastic. How could you not? It's amazing for this sort of stuff. It's durable. It's light. It can, uh, as someone said earlier, it can scale. So uh, that trend continues. Honestly, that trend continues largely unabated in the modern day. There are steps. People are taking steps to slow it down, of course, and look towards sustainability. And we'll find out why they're doing that in just a minute. And it's a depressing answer. But yes, plastic is king because it works. Yeah. And it's not to say this might not change over the next couple of years, because there, as we've seen, you know, with plastics, uh, there are some large players taking steps to combat the plastic problem, like we talked about on that episode with Lego, um, pivoting to using paper to contain their tiny plastic pieces. So yes, yeah, it's, it's a step in the right direction. But in the cosmetics universe, L'Oreal, who's a giant, um, is aiming to make 100% of their packaging reusable, refillable, which I love, and or compostable by 2025. Um, and they also are... I wouldn't go so far as to say committing, but they would uh, essentially their goal is to source 50% of that packaging from recycled materials. That's really good news. And in addition to plastic, there are other uh, cosmetic and personal care products that actually can contain toxic chemicals that the environment doesn't know what to do with. They can't break them down. They, they, uh, they can create runoff that goes into water supplies, um, drain into rivers, infiltrate the water system. It's bad news. So a whole nother side of, of this uh, of this discussion. And that's just one of uh, the many aspects um, that are difficult when it comes to pollution and the world of fashion and cosmetics. And we're going to get into more of those when we return from a quick sponsor break. 
Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long. For just $25. $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer? Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor! Gene, we'll boot it! Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Yes, we've returned. There's, uh, yeah, there is another facet to this, to the world of fashion in general, beyond makeup. And it's one that many of us have probably heard about in recent years. It's the idea 
often reported that the fashion industry, clothing in particular, generates a great deal of pollution and waste. You may recall hearing in particular breathless, somewhat hyperbolic headlines claiming the fashion industry is the second most polluting industry in the world. Uh, There's like oil and then the clothes you like. And that's a bummer, right? Uh, but but to find the truth, we did some digging, and there's a uh, there's a great article by an author named Alden Wicker writing for an outfit called Eco Cult. And uh, what what I love about this, uh, if if Alden you happen to be listening, is that you specifically say, "Don't go quoting me and say that Alden said this on Eco Cult." Uh, but we looked at your math. And it's solid, and it makes an important distinction here. Uh, There's a thing called the Global Fashion Agenda. In 2017, they partnered with a consulting group called the Boston Consulting Group, and they wanted to do some analysis and see whether there was truth to that claim. They published this thing called the Pulse of the Fashion Industry Report, and in that, they found that the fashion industry itself was responsible for the emission of 1.7 billion tons of CO2 in 2015, but that is only 4.3% of the overall 39.9 billion tons of carbon emissions that the U.S. overall put out. So that's very far from second. That makes it the 10th most polluting industry. Other things beat it. Agriculture, transportation, all of all of the Captain Planet villains, basically. I, I apologize, Ben. I did not get a chance to look at this uh, article. Is it just relating to the U.S., do we know, or is it is it global? Like, um, because I'm just imagining all this fashion industry and all the, you know, different differing plants that are producing all the stuff that's used in fashion that are across the world in very specific places. Because I'm, it just makes you wonder if they're looking at emissions that are actually taking place on U.S. soil, or if they're looking at all of the emissions that the industry gives out. And there's that intersection again, right? Because these are global supply chains. If we look at the emissions just in the U.S., and that's an excellent question, where that stat is is centered, uh, then we're not looking at the emissions made by factories where many of these pieces of clothing are manufactured. Uh, this industry, there is there is another, there's a more global snack, snapshot, a, a snack shot, <laughs> Sorry, guys. Uh, there's uh, let's keep it in. I like snapshot. I'm gonna start using that. Uh, but there's there's a more global snapshot here. Uh, in August of this year, just last month, the same outfit, the Global Fashion Agenda, partnered with another returning guest to our show, the consulting group McKenzie. Oh, which is a very powerful, very weird, scary thing. Efficient, anyway, efficient. Yes. <laughs> Yes, they are efficient. Uh, they they uh, got together and they did a new estimate. They they calculated a new estimate and they found that the fashion industry contributes to overall four percent of greenhouse gas in 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 the overall in the world. And there's a thing that makes these numbers weird and significant, and it's what we've been kind of dancing around. The fashion industry is a an 
an aggregate industry. It's it's a culmination of multiple other related industries, some that are obvious and some not so much. That's right. I mean, think about the supply chain of what goes into fashion. You know, there's agriculture involved. We've got cotton. It's an agricultural product. We've got uh, the uh, fossil fuels that are required to ship these raw materials to the factories where they are then spun into the material that is then used to actually make the clothing. Um, polyester, a durable fabric, uh, kind of maligned, but it's used a lot, uh, even if you don't know it, because it's durable, but it's made from plastic. or That's an additive in it. Electricity, leather. You know, livestock's involved in part of the supply chain. And there's just so many other industries that really play, like shipping, all of this stuff, that play a huge role in here. And there's waste at every step of the process. Um, So in terms of waste, the fashion industry is responsible for 92 million tons of solid waste per year. uh, And that's across the entire planet. And that represents 4% of the 2.12 billion tons of waste dumped each year. And that's even more than incredibly toxic e-waste, which be like electronic components that are discarded, uh, and more than twice as much as supermarkets uh, create food waste. Um, and that one in particular never sits right with me. And, and I have a, 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 a thing to bring up when we get to um, some of the actual waste of products that comes from the fashion industry. Hmm. Yeah, there's definitely stuff there. You guys, I never thought about plastic buttons and components for garments and clothing. I never thought about the amount of plastic that exists just due to those things. Think about the, the shipping con- container of Lego parts that spilled into the ocean. You know, I mean, buttons would be probably shipped. There'd be a whole shipping container full of millions of buttons and tiny little, you know, uh, what else would they be? Little, you know, little accoutrements, little like like highlight things. Like you're, that's Chashkis, a really good point. That's pla- right. Mm-hmm. Plastic zippers, aglets, uh, you know, which is a totally unnecessary word that I love in English. Is that what that is, Ben? The little piece at the end of hoodie strings? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. That's correct. Yep. So that's that's my show and tell. Yeah. Not quite a conspiracy makeup kit, but, you know, uh, we're working semi-live. Uh, you're it's right. got one on my boots. Right, right, right. Uh, Most people listening to this are probably wearing some form of plastic on their person. You know, this stuff is everywhere, as we said. Uh, So that's kind of the lay of the land. And so our next question should logically be, what are cosmetic and fashion manufacturers doing to address these issues? To their credit, multiple manufacturers have taken steps to combat one or more of the specific issues described above. Makers of cosmetics have responded to some of the demands of what are called cruelty-free movements, you know, and uh, large clothing companies have meticulously analyzed their supply chains. I'll say it, often in response to an outcry about exploitative labor or, you know, dodgy environmental practices. But, they, but that, that, it's good. It means your voice matters. Right, right, right. Again, it's empowerment. Uh, And in some cases, they have instituted sustainability programs of one sort or another, like L'Oreal's goal to use more recycled substances. However, at the same time, there's another factor at play. Some companies, some of the same companies actually, are accelerating this trend of pollution 
due in part to a phenomenon that I think everybody was waiting to hear us say, fast fashion. The, uh, the idea that you can, you don't have to buy something and keep it for 25 years. You can buy the hottest look of that season, of that moment, and then you can move on to the next. It will be affordable. It will be disposable. That's right. Because the previous version of that would have been luxury goods that were so expensive, there would be a resale market for them. Even if it's not you, you're going to sell it, you know, for hundreds of dollars, potentially, if it's like a Gucci item that maybe it's two seasons old, but there's still a market for that. Whereas like something from Zara or H&M, you know, less of an aftermarket for stuff like that. But that's the part that drives me insane. I mean, every year the world consumes more than 80 billion items of clothing, and uh, the average individual in the U.S. tosses 82 pounds of textile goods out each year, which adds up to 11 million tons for the entire U.S. But, like, in the same way that waste, food waste makes no sense to me, like, because there's organizations that should be able to funnel that to people that really need it. Shouldn't that also be the case for a lot of this uh, clothing waste? Oh, God. Yeah, I was thinking about putting this in or if we should save it for a different episode, but it's 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 a terrible point and a very good one. Uh, a lot of times that clothing that you donate, if you live in a Western country that is supposed to go help other people who need clothing, a lot of times that has a negative effect on the population people are attempting to help. It can kill local textile businesses because they can't compete with pallet after pallet of free t-shirts and and pants and so on. Uh, It's just, it's the sustainable price versus virtually free. And a lot of that stuff, by the way, doesn't get straight up donated to people in need. It goes to someone who sells it. Uh, so there's there are different rent seekers and opportunists at, at, at every corner of this. And, um, and, and you're right. Uh, there, there is a lot of waste. One time, I don't want to get too personal here, but one time in our fair metropolis of Atlanta, I almost got arrested for giving away bread uh, that I, that I got day old bread from a bakery. I was walking around like some kind of cut rate, uh, late summer Santa Claus with a big old plastic bag of old day old croissants and focaccia and so on and handing it out to people who wanted bread. And, uh, and the police found me. <laughs> what, what, what did they say to you? You have to have a license to yeah. give away bread. Yeah, man. If it's, if it's a food product, there are now crazy regulations and stipulations. I might be poisoning people. I don't have any kind of like uh, health inspection. Uh, you know what I mean? So I guess it, I guess it makes sense. Ben, think about doing that right now. Just having a bag of baguettes. And instead of, you know, doing things that, you know, well-known comedians talk about with bags of baguettes, you're just taking them around and just handing them to people. Even if you've got gloves on, even if you're masked up. Mm-hmm. I'm just trying to imagine that. I just wanted to walk around with snacks and I didn't think about it, you know. So it's technically illegal to like give someone your leftover food or something. Like if you have, you know, a, a doggy bag and then and the homeless individual asks you for money and instead you say, here, take my food. Is that could you get in trouble for doing that? That's a good question. I would like to think that most people wouldn't stop you from doing that because it's just a basic gesture of human kindness maybe they would stop you if it were if like there were reports of someone purposefully poisoning people that way and they were on the lookout but i don't think anybody's 
gotten stopped. You may have been told perhaps don't feed these people or you're not helping them. You're accelerating a problem or something, but I don't, I don't see someone getting arrested for it. You know? Yeah. I, I, yeah. Arrested seems a little harsh, but maybe fined or warned mm. uh, unless mm. you're, you're a chronic giver of your food. <laughs> oh uh, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, I guess yeah. it just depends on where you are. Like what city I bet mm. you it changes um, city, country, local yeah. area and all that. Let, let us know your stance on that, folks. Uh, let us know your stance on on uh, whether or not there are goif, give your own food, <laughs> give out your food uh, laws on the books where in your neck of the global woods. I do want to say that, that that statistic we just mentioned, the idea, like a lot of people listening in the U.S. are thinking, did I really throw out 82 pounds of clothing last year, we have to consider, yeah, that average sounds crazy because we're talking about an average of 328 something million people. So they're probably, you know, like any other average of that size, there's a very small group at the top that is just like, why would you wear the same clothes twice? What am I, a farmer? You know, people like there there are people who live very different lives than most of the other people. And there, there are people on the other end of the spectrum who are like, why would I own two shirts? I have one torso. And there's, <laughs> there's a lot of variance between. But what's happening in, in a way that's affecting everybody in that span, everybody who buys clothing, is that just like the uh, just just like when the price of mirrors dropped and they became more affordable, the price of what's regarded as high fashion is dropping. That's a good thing, it would seem, for consumers. It means we can buy more stuff, and so we do. In fact, we buy 400% more stuff like this than we did 20, 25 years ago, and we don't wear it forever, of course, and it doesn't magically disappear just because we can't see it. We're adults. We have object permanence. We know things exist outside of our vision. This stuff all goes somewhere. Yeah, it does. And uh, just remember that dropping price of your fashion has a great effect on your pockets, but it has a terrible effect on the people attempting to manufacture it so quickly in all of those places across the world who are furiously trying to make as many pairs of pants as possible as they can for almost nothing. So then what should consumers do? Should we should we posse up and say we're going to collectively support more sustainable supply chains, even if it's more expensive? Should we lobby our government leaders? As you point out, Matt, as an excellent observation, that does that does uh, result in change, you know? Or should we just now this is tough to say in a capitalist economy, should we just buy fewer things? Should we just buy less stuff? Uh I don't know. It's a tough show. You can't do that. You can't do that. Don't you got to buy everything. Buy more things. Mm -hmm. That that Amazon Prime account you've got is just sitting there waiting. America, (laughs) the fire sale, right? Everything must go. Uh, Here's here's the fact of the matter. So companies are companies. They're going to follow the most profitable business model. So logically, these problems are a type of stuff they don't want you to know until solving these problems becomes more profitable than ignoring them. And that's, again, that's not to say fashion companies are some kind of league of evil mutants, league of well-dressed supervillains or something. It's just that 
your favorite fashion line is like any other business. They're going to ultimately follow wherever the bottom line leads. And, and there really is no easy answer, as we alluded to earlier, when just thinking about something like animal testing. That's one tiny little aspect of this. All of these are are debates, really. And I think that's why import, why it's important for us to talk about them. So we don't want the conversation to end here. We don't want this to just be, you know, something that Ben and Noel and I talk about and, and you and Paul listen to, Mission Control, of course. Um, we want it to be, you know, let's come up with some great ideas. Let's talk about this stuff. You can begin the conversation with us or just amongst, you know, a friend, maybe a family member. Just talk about some of this stuff. Uh, if you want to talk to us, you can reach us on social media. On Twitter and Facebook, we are Conspiracy Stuff. On Instagram, we are Conspiracy Stuff Show. And if you would like to uh, talk to us in semi-person, uh, then please give us a call on our own personal bat phone. That's one 833 I like that reverb, Matt. And uh, you'll have three minutes. Let us know what's on your mind. Anything goes. Uh, just let us know whether you are comfortable with us using your voice and or name on the air. And if you don't want to do that stuff, you can head on over to youtube.com slash conspiracy stuff. That's where you will find videos, hopefully, from this very podcast. Uh, <laughs> we shall see. There are going to be tons of videos there. It's going to be mostly us, at least in the near future, talking like this, but with cameras so you can look at us and we can hang out that way. But there are other surprises coming, too. So I don't know. Just make sure you subscribe and tell your friends. OK, cool. subscribe. Tell your friends. Leave a friendly comment in the comments uh, and take that same uh, attitude and, and bring it to iTunes and leave us a nice review in the iTunes store. Really great way to help people discover the show and kind of up the profile of it in the magical Apple algorithm. Um, you can also find us online uh, at Here's Where It Gets Crazy, our delightful Facebook group. Yeah, and, uh, you know, yes, we're going to be honest. We're a little old school. We still call it iTunes. Just call it Apple Podcast. I don't know. It's a, it's a learning curve. So, uh, <laughs> a mouthful. Yeah. yeah, but while you're on the internet, if you uh, hate phone calls, you get it. You hate social media. We also clearly get that. Uh, you can always contact us regardless of the time of day, regardless of what you're wearing. Uh, we want to hear from you. You can hit us up at our good old-fashioned email address where we are. Conspiracy at iHeartRadio.com. Stuff They Don't Want You to Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long. For just $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. 
As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene, was good. But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh. Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcasts.